Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. Some men and their wives cried out against their Jewish brothers and sisters. Some of them were saying, There are now many of us. We have many sons and daughters. We have to get some grain so we can eat and stay alive. Others were saying, We are being forced to sell our fields, vineyards, and homes. We have to do it to buy grain. There isn't enough food for everyone. Still others were saying, we ha we've had to borrow money. We need it to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We need to belong to the, we belong to the same family lines as the rest of our people. Our children are, are as good as theirs, but we've had to sell them off as slaves. Some of our daughters have already been made slaves, but we can't do anything about it. That's because our, our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I heard them when they cried out, and I was very angry when I heard what they were saying. I thought it over for a while. Then I accused the nobles and officials of breaking the law. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I, I called together a large group of people to handle the matter. I said, our Jewish brothers and sisters were sold to other nations. We've done everything we could to buy them back and bring them home. But look at what you are doing. You are actually selling your own people. Now we'll have to buy them back too. The people kept quiet. They couldn't think of anything to say. So I continued. What are you doing? What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you show respect for our God? Shouldn't you live in a way that will keep our enemies from saying bad things about us? I'm lending the people money and grain. So are my relatives and my men. But we must stop charging interest. Give the people's fields back to them. Give them back their vineyards, olive groves, and houses. Do it right away. Give everything back to them. Also give them back the 1% of money, grain, fresh wine, and olive oil you have charged them. We'll give it back, they said, and we won't require anything more from them. We'll do exactly as you say. Then I sent from, for the priests. I made the nobles officials and officials promise to do what they had said. I also shook out my pockets and emptied them. I said, someone might decide not to keep this promise they have made. If that happens, may God shake them out of their house. May he empty them of everything they own. The whole community said, amen. They praised the Lord and the leaders did what they had promised to do. And that's not all. I was appointed as governor of Judah in the 20th year that Artaxerxes was king of Persia. I remained in that position until his 32nd year. During those 12 years, I and my relatives didn't eat the food that was provided from, for my table, but there had been governors before me. They had put a heavy load on the people. They had taken a pound of silver from each of them. They had also taken food and wine from them. The officials had acted like high and mighty rulers over them, but because of my great respect for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I spent all my time working on this wall. All my men were gathered there to work on it too. We didn't receive any land for ourselves. Many people ate at my table. They included 150 Jews and officials. They also included leaders who came to us from the nations that were around us. Each day, one ox, six of the best sheep, and some birds were prepared for me. Every 10 days, plen plenty of wine of all kinds was bought in a, bought in a well in, as well. In spite of all that, I never asked for the food that was provided for my table. That was, because of the, that was because the people were already paying too much taxes. 
You are my God. Please remember me and help me. Keep in mind everything I have done for these people. Thank you for that. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are in a series looking at the book of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And um, I'm not sure about you, I wonder what image comes to your mind when you think of Nehemiah. I'm not suggesting that Nehemiah was a wizard, but when I think of Nehemiah, I like to think of characters like Albus Dumbledore or Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. And I, I think of a character who was sort of strong and unshaken and wise and sage like. I, I wonder what image comes to your mind. Well, so far in this series, we've seen how Nehemiah pulls people together around a common vision, a common goal of building a wall. And in a sense, he says, come on, everyone build. And everyone had an opportunity to play their part in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. It was a big project and it was completed in 52 days. And for that to happen, it required everyone's input and involvement. In the same fashion, as we've seen last week in chapter 4, as opposition struck, uh, it's as if Nehemiah says, come on, everyone fights. Uh, so people uh, are working together. They have a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. In chapter 5 today, we see that Nehemiah brings something different into their minds. The focus shifts away from the condition of the wall to the condition of the community. And in a sense, what Nehemiah says is everyone counts. Every person matters. He will not stand for the way vulnerable people are being mistreated by their own countrymen. Chapter 5 breaks into three sections, and we're going to work through all three of them. The first section, verses 1 to 5, deal with the problem, the problem raised by the people, the outcry. The second section, verses 6 to 13, um, deals with Nehemiah's response and solution. And then finally, the third section, verses 14 to 19, deal with Nehemiah's example. We're going to consider each of these sections in their own context and then consider what implications that might have for us as God's people, as his church today. So let's begin with the problem. And I'm reading from Nehemiah 5 verses 1 to 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. 
As we move away from the coalface of rebuilding the wall, we are taken into the lives of some of the families, particularly those on the lower end of the social scale, and the desperation of their plight. Now, there are three outcries against their fellow Jews which relate to hunger, debt and slavery. Now, in terms of hunger, the region had been through a period of famine and food supplies had become scarce. In addition, to undertake the work of rebuilding, the leading breadwinners um, had to leave their trades, their professions and their farms. And such a sacrifice was now starting to show in an undersupply of food and loss of income. And greedy merchants used the opportunity to inflate the price of grain, debt. As a result of the poor and vulnerable, sorry, as a result, the poor and vulnerable were forced into debt to pay for, ba- for daily basics. And then slavery, after mortgaging their fields, vineyards and homes, people even were resorting to selling their children into slavery for labour as repayment for the debts. The wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. People were being exploited. Interest was being charged, which was a direct violation of God's laws set out in the Torah. A foreigner could be charged interest, but not a fellow Israelite. Now, in order to understand this, we need a bit of Old Testament background. God had established a system whereby all people regardless of their social status, would have enough and could live life equitably. It was a system designed to ensure people did not fall further and further down a spiral of poverty and oppression. Now, the books of Moses, also known as the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, clearly spelled out the responsibilities that the Israelites had to care for the poor. For example, Exodus 22, 25 to 27 says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Or Leviticus 25, 35 to 37. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest, or do not take interest or any profit for them, but fear God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. And Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. Do you get the idea? It's repeated time and time again in the Torah. Do not charge your fellow brother and sister Israelite interest. And yet, that's exactly what was happening. Now, in addition to the do not charge interest rule, there was also the Sabbath year. And every seven years, all of the debts were cancelled. 
and slaves were released and the land and animals and people were to have a time of rest and renewal. And then at the, at the, after 50 years, so 7 times 7, which is 49, in the 50th year there was actually what's known as the year of Jubilee. And this is where not only were debts cancelled, but land was returned to its original owner. Again, it was a time of celebration and a time of rest. It was, in a sense, a refresh or a restart, a little bit like an upgrade. You think about today, we have to upgrade our iPhones or our computers or our technology or our cars or whatever it is. And when you upgrade, it's like a brand new, fresh start. It's a little bit like that. It's an opportunity for a restart for the whole community. And it would bring everyone back to a level playing field. These laws were established to protect vulnerable people as well as, being a, as well as ensuring a way that the Israelite people could actually care for one another and establishing a way that they could actually be salt and light to the nations around them. And this was indeed to be, and still is, a distinct feature of God's people. God's plan and ideal is that no one gets overlooked. Now, this is so difficult for you and I to get our minds around because we live in a society and a culture that is all about the promotion of the individual. It's all about getting ahead. It's all about our own safety and comfort and security and prosperity. Our society does not encourage us to think of others, in particular to think of those who are less fortunate than ourselves, does it? It's all about your personal security and well-being. And what we see here is that is not what God established for his people. In fact, it's one of the primary ways that God's people can be set apart and different. And it was one of the ways that the Israelite people were to be seen as so different was because they cared for their poor and vulnerable And I know that that is becoming a little bit more acceptable and common in today's society. There is more of a a push or an acceptance of wanting to look out for those who are poor and vulnerable. But it certainly in the ancient world was not a value that people or governments or officials had on their radar. What's fascinating is that whilst all of these things that we've just talked about were the law, okay? These were God's laws, they were good laws, but the law failed to motivate people. And in fact, you know what? The law always fails to motivate people. You turn to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, when Jesus has come and when grace is now in operation, the very thing that God commanded actually starts to happen naturally, without a law or a commandment, when people have the Holy Spirit living within them and grace is in operation rather than law, the very thing that God commands begins to happen. So we see this in Acts chapter 2, 44 to 45. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Grace changes the heart and it changes the focus of how we live our lives. You see, in the kingdom of God, economics work very differently to the way the world operates. And as Trevor 
invited us earlier to consider, who's our king? (laughs) If we are people of King Jesus, seeking to live the kingdom of God, then we will have a very different approach to economics and to finance. And just as some of the wealthy Israelites had disregarded God's laws by taking advantage of the poor and vulnerable to their own gain, so we too, you and I, can take advantage of some of the world's most poor and vulnerable by the choices we make. We have the option to purchase ethically, to invest ethically, As a church and as individuals, we can support and work with organisations who speak out against exploitation and abuse. We can raise our voice against injustice and play our part. And the Bible has so much to say about God's heart for justice. We believe here at Erin Baptist this is really important, which is why justice is one of our key vision areas. Secondly, Nehemiah's response and solution, verses 6 to 13. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the officials and nobles. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had said, to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah's personal response, as we see in verse 6, is one of anger. He was furious over what he heard and saw. What was happening was not only disobedient to God's laws, it was an absolute disgrace that brought God's holy name into disrepute. Nehemiah didn't fly off the handle with his anger. As we see in verse 7, he pondered in his mind. Nehemiah doesn't react. He responds. He takes a breath. He reflects on the best course of action and then, only then, does he act. And he acts by calling a community meeting. And at this meeting, he accuses 
the guilty parties of their wrongdoing. He confronts the issue. You are charging your own people interest. And the officials and nobles are, are like dogs with their tails behind their legs. They're silent because they know they've done the wrong thing and they're not going to refute it. You are doing the very thing the law instructs you not to do, Nehemiah says. The people of God are his representatives, and when they take advantage of each other and treat one another with contempt and disrespect, who does it ultimately reflect upon to a watching world? God himself. The way people treat people matters to God greatly. In particular, the way God's people relate to God's people matters to God greatly because it reflects on his holy name. When the world looks at us and the way that we treat one another and the way we treat other believers, it reflects on God. And Nehemiah has a real conviction about this. The way people are treating one another reflects on the holiness of God's name. And he is furious about it because God's name is being brought into disrepute. Nehemiah was a leader who cared desperately about the honour of God's name. He was not a politician who asked, what is popular? He was not a diplomat who asked, what is safe? He was not an entrepreneur who asked, what is profitable? He was not a manager who asked, what is efficient? Nehemiah was a godly leader who asked, what is right? What is right? What is right according to God's word, to God's law? In verse 9, he says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And at this, the officials and nobles became very quiet. They knew that what they had done was an affront to God's holy name. Nehemiah and his officials had been lending themselves, but not with interest. As a fellow Jew, he says, let us stop charging them interest. And he instructs them immediately to return to those who've been exploited, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, along with the interest that had been charged. Right your wrongs, he says. Then in the presence of the priests, he performs a robe-shaking ritual that demonstrates what will happen to those who do not comply. They will be shaken out of Israel. We read in verse 12 and 13 that those responsible did what Nehemiah had asked of them. They made amends for their wrongdoing. They obviously felt convicted and realised that what they had done was wrong. This is a picture of repentance. It's taking ownership for your actions and wherever possible, making amends. And you know what? Repentance oftentimes requires action. We are all sinful. We all do the wrong thing and we all disobey God's law. I could read out a bunch of laws 
or, or commands or instructions from the New Testament that I'm guilty of not upholding and obeying, and we'd all be in the same boat. It's never a question of finger-pointing. It's a question of owning it first and foremost, and then if we're truly repentant, taking whatever actions we can to demonstrate that we have actually changed, that we can see the error in our ways. It may be a conversation. It may require having the humility to say, I'm sorry to someone. I got it wrong. I shouldn't have said that to you or about you. I shouldn't have done this thing or I should have done this thing. I don't know what it is. But God's people should be characterised by an ongoing life of repentance. We are absolutely 100% saved by his grace. We don't do this to earn his favour. We do it because we recognise that he went to a cross because he loved us so much. And a lifestyle of repentance is a lifestyle that says, God, without your help, I am a sinful, broken person. I'm going to continue to break your word, to break your laws, but that's not my heart's desire. And a repentant person demonstrates that they get that. They simply get that, oh, I've done it again. I've violated God's law. That's not what he wants for me. That's not how I understand scripture in terms of how God wants me to relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ. We go with a repentant heart, firstly to God, but then to the party that we've offended or hurt. That's what we see happening here. We see those debts being returned to their rightful owners and those fields and property and so forth, and the interest. It's a picture of Zacchaeus, if you will, in the Old Testament. Finally, in verses 14 to 19, we see Nehemiah's example. Verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the early governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. In this final section, we see the example that Nehemiah sets in the way that he treats others with what he has. We learn an important insight in verse 14, that when Nehemiah left Susa in chapter 1, 
or sorry, chapter 2, as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, he was not doing so merely as an influential Israelite with permission to rebuild the wall, but was in fact appointed as governor over the land of Judah, a position that he held for 12 years. Now, with the wall being rebuilt in 52 days, we can actually see that the majority of Nehemiah's work was not rebuilding the wall, it was in fact rebuilding the community and the people because everyone counts, everyone matters. During this time, unlike his predecessors, he didn't take advantage of all the entitlements his role afforded him. Nehemiah chooses not to lord it over his fellow Jews. He did this because of his reverence for God and his compassion for people. He set an example in the way he conducted himself as governor. Right from the get-go, we see in verse 16 how he personally gets involved in the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah was not a do-as-I-say, but a do-as-I-do leader. Nehemiah was generous. He had a hospitable spirit opening his table to many of his fellow co-workers and those who came to visit during the time of his governorship. He shared his privilege with others. He shared his privilege with others. You and I are a privileged people. Every single one of us in this room is a privileged person. We have received the grace of God. But in comparison to many third world countries, we also have so much comparative wealth. And it's a convicting challenge for all of us to consider how are we using what we have to care for others. There are two verses that really stand out to me in this section, verse 15 and verse 19. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Verse 19, remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. What we see is that Nehemiah lived his life to glorify God with a keen awareness of God's watchful eye. Nehemiah lived his life in the presence of God. It would be nine years ago now, I heard this Latin phrase, and I want to leave you with it, because it perfectly sums up the way that Nehemiah sought to live his life, and I think captures the essence of what the Christian life is all about. The phrase is coram Dio, and it means in the presence of God. You might like to write this down, coram Deo, in the presence of God. This phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live coram Deo is to live one's life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. You could say to live Coram Deo is to live every day with the knowledge that Jesus is King. (laughs) 
It's to live with an understanding that in everything we do, we are doing so under the watchful gaze of a loving creator God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. And he doesn't watch us with a judgmental eye. He watches us with a loving eye. Now, I want you, for this moment, I want you to think about if you had... I, don't, I know this illustration won't apply for everyone. But if you had a loving parent, if you had a loving parent who believed in you and cared for you and gave you a loving upbringing, it may be a mother, it may be a father, it may be both, and I recognise that this won't apply for everyone... As you start out as a youngster, you are pretty much under the watchful, gazeful eye of that loving parent or parents a lot of the time. And as you grow and become more independent, your life becomes less under the gaze of that loving parent. When you're young and you're wanting, even when you're 39 and you love your parents dearly, you want to make them proud. If you've got a good relationship with your parents, and they've given you every opportunity to succeed in life. You want to make them proud. It's, it's innate. Just imagine that in everything you do, you are under the watchful, loving gaze of a parent who wants to see you succeed, who wants to see you thrive, who doesn't want to see you held in the bondage of captivity and the negativity of the talk that the evil one can sow into our minds that robs us and destroys us of the freedom and the joy that God wants us to know and own. To live Coram Deo is to live under the watchful gaze of an all-loving, all-caring parent who wants nothing but to see their son or daughter succeed and thrive. That is the watchful eye of God. It is an eye not of judgment and condemnation, wanting to catch you out for doing the wrong thing. It's an eye of love and grace. There is coming a day where there will be judgment. God will exercise his right to judge. And that's actually an expression of his love. But God's heart is to motivate with love. Remember, the law never motivates. Grace does. When we know we are loved with that watchful eye, we're motivated to live a life of grace. Nehemiah sought to live his life in the presence of God and it impacted everything he did. In particular, we see that he had a passion for faithfulness towards God and a compassion towards people. When you think about it right there, that's the summary of the Old Testament and prophets that Jesus summed up, loving God and loving neighbour. It's about devotion to God and compassion towards people. And we see this so beautifully portrayed in the life of Nehemiah. What a powerful example he is to us. He cared for the poor and vulnerable. He listened to the cry of the oppressed. He sought to bring about a solution by holding those accountable who'd taken advantage of the least of these. He models servant leadership by getting his own hands dirty in the rebuilding project. He acted with conviction and godly authority. 
He chose to use his powerful position to bless others. He pursues with passion the integrity and glory of God's name. Like Nehemiah, may we be a people who live our lives coram Deo, in the presence of God. May we be people who are faithful towards God and compassionate towards people. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you again this morning for your word and the truth and relevance that it has to our lives today. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah and we pray, Lord, that we might take that example that has been opened to us in the scriptures today and with your help seek to live lives that bring glory to your name, that are devoted to your name and show great compassion towards people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.